Tim, Renee will say, look at me. Look at me. I'm going to ask you something, and I want to make sure that you're listening. Tim, look at me. Now, apparently, Renee has asked me to do something, and it has not been done. Now, I can't believe that she would think that I would not pay attention to her when she would ask me to do something. Tim, look at me. I want to make sure you hear me so that what I ask, you will do. I just can't believe she thinks I don't pay attention to her sometimes. Well, that's human nature, isn't it? We don't pay attention. And we often don't do the things we're asked to do because we're really not listening. And this message today is from the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. And though I don't think Renee got this from Moses, Moses did something similarly to the new generation in Israel. Now, he didn't actually say, look at me, so I know that you're listening But in effect, he did. His passion was that this new generation would listen to his teaching and thus do the commands of God that they might live in the fullness of life as they possessed the land. And so today we'll be looking at the nature of obedience. We'll be considering these uh, words from Moses as Moses is ending his first sermon here in chapter 4. We find him commanding the new generation, listen to my teaching, hear my instructions, and obey God's statutes and rules. And verse 1 says, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. Now, the sermon outline is rather simple. We're not going to look at every single verse of this chapter, but we'll simply divide the chapter into three ways. First of all, obedience is commanded. Secondly, obedience is unnatural, in case you haven't figured that out yet. I'll convince you of that today. And thirdly, obedience is missiological. Obedience is actually missionary activity. Now before we dive into this chapter, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've established a covenant relationship with us. We thank you that you've not left us in the dark as to what you have commanded and what you expect of us with regards to obedience. So I pray today that we be reminded of our obligation as part of the covenant to obey. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, obedience is commanded. Moses commanded the new generation to listen to his teaching, the commands of God, and do them. Verse 1. The commands obviously included the Ten Commandments. We'll be just looking at 
at certain verses in this rather lengthy chapter. So get open to chapter 4, be ready to go to whatever verse I tell you to look at. So go to verse 13. Here we find Moses saying, and he declared to you, that is God declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets. So the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is part of what Moses is teaching this new generation, reminding them of what God said from atop Mount Sinai. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, form the basis of the covenant. Now, verse 13 references these two stone tablets, and some people think that the first part of the Ten Commandments was written on one tablet, the second part written on the other tablet. I do not think that is the case. Because it was part of the ancient Near Eastern treaty form that each party in the covenant would have a complete record of the covenant, would have a copy. And I think what happened is that the full Ten Commandments were on each of those tablets, God's copy and Moses and the Israelites' copy, the two stone tablets. So Moses taught more, though, than the Decalogue. So if you look at verses 1, 5, 8, and 14, you'll see this phrase where Moses references statutes and rules. So you have the Ten Commandments, then you have this section of teaching, the statutes and rules. And I believe what Moses is referencing there is the book of the covenant that we find in Exodus 21 through Exodus 23. But also I believe Moses is saying, and listen to my exposition of the law in these sermons I am preaching in the book of Deuteronomy. So Moses commanded the new generation, listen to my teaching, listen to the commands of God. Moses taught the very word of God. We learn something about God in this passage. God is unseen, yet heard. Look down to verses 10 through 12 of the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. Moses recounted God giving the Ten Commandments to that Horeb generation, and he specifically reminds them that their forefathers observed God speaking from the midst of the fire. The top of Mount Sinai was engulfed in fire. God was unseen, yet heard as he spoke the Ten Commandments. You heard the sounds of the words, wrote Moses, but saw no form. There was only voice, verse 12. So Israel was to obey the Lord's authoritative voice, his spoken word, his commandments. Now, 40 years later, Moses said to that new generation, verse 1, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. See, we learn something about God. He's unseen, yet heard. We obey his voice. We learn something about God's word also in this passage. Look to verse 2. It's complete and it's sufficient. Moses says, don't add anything to it, nor subtract anything from it. It stands alone, complete, sufficient, authoritative. 
We believe. The Bible teaches plenary inspiration. That the entire Bible, plenary, the whole is inspired word of God. That we do not have the option, although some take this option, of saying, okay, this command fits my lifestyle. Therefore, I obey it. That command, uh, nope, doesn't fit. And we'll just simply set it aside. That's what many do in our day. That's why we see such crazy stuff being embraced in our culture, even in the broad, general Christian church. It's because people fail to see that God's Word in its entirety, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is the very Word of God. Plenary inspiration, the whole. We are to obey the commands of God. We do not pick and choose which commands suit us. We obey every word, for it is the voice of the Lord. We also learned something in this passage about our responsibility with regards to teaching the word to the next generation. Look at verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligent, lest ye forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Well, what things did their eyes see? That original generation at Horeb came near. Look at verse 11. Came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. That's what they saw. And out of that, they heard the voice of God speaking forth his commands. Think of Moses back in Exodus 3 where God called him to be that prophet, that redeemer figure to go and bring the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. Think of Moses standing there. God is unseen yet heard. Although Moses saw a theophany, a physical representation of God, that burning bush, but he didn't see God. God is unseen yet heard. What Moses saw was this awesome, miraculous, supernatural event. And out of that, God spoke to him. That Horeb generation, very similarly, they saw the top of the mountain engulfed in flame, this supernatural event, and yet out of that, God spoke to them. God was unseen yet heard. And Moses exhorted that generation and subsequent generations of which we're a part. We're a subsequent generation. Do you know that? Many, many generations. But Moses is speaking to us today. Take care and keep your soul diligently. How can we teach our children that which we have not learned in our hearts ourselves? How can we call them to obedience when we are not obeying ourselves? Keep your soul diligently that they would not only remember the awesome event, this supernatural event 
of the unseen God speaking from the fire, but that they would also embrace those commands in their soul, in their heart, and endeavor to live by them. Only then would they be able to teach the all-sufficient, the complete, the authoritative Word of God to their children and their children's children. And this is our wonderful responsibility today as families and as a church to first keep God's commands in our soul, to treasure them, to embrace them, to affirm them, to live by them, and then to pass on the truth of God to the next generation. And finally, we learn something in this passage about the benefit of obedience. It is life-giving. Look at verses 4 through 5. It references an episode in Israel's history where some in Israel committed spiritual idolatry and broke the covenant. The covenant is given, or the count is given in Numbers 25, 1 through 9, so you can just write that down and refer to that later. But I want to read just verse 3 of Numbers 25. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Those who disobeyed and worshipped Baal here at Peor were destroyed. Look at Deuteronomy 4 and verse 4. But you held fast to the Lord your God and are all alive today. Some disobeyed and worshipped the Baal and they were destroyed, but others obeyed. God and did not break the covenant and are all alive today. Look at that term held fast in verse 4. Held fast. Same, same idea we find in Genesis 2 where God calls Adam and Eve to leave and cleave. <laughs> to leave and hold fast to one another. That term hold fast is a covenant term. It means to come together and not to be separated. It, it references this covenant of marriage. It's a term that points to covenant faithfulness here in Deuteronomy 4. That covenant faithfulness, obedience, is life-giving. Those who obey and enjoy the promise of the covenant being fulfilled, those who obey ultimately possess the land. In verse 1, in verse 5, in verse 14, Moses links obedience to Israel, obedience of Israel, to Israel taking the land. Let me make this clear. We do not obey to get, but we cannot doubt God's word here. Obedience brings life and blessing. As Jerry prayed, we do not we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. We are not saved by our obedience. We're saved by Christ's obedience, but we are saved to walk in obedience. God is unseen, yet heard. Listen. Do what he commands. And find God's blessing that we would live life to its fullest. Second, obedience is unnatural. 
we learn something about us in this passage that by nature we do not obey God. What did Aaron and the people of Israel do while they were at the foot of Mount Sinai waiting for Moses to come down with, with the law? We find this in Exodus 32. What did they do? Well, I tell you what they did, and you all, most of you probably remember this. Though God had not even really given them the law yet, they fashioned a golden calf, an image of God, and began to worship. Though God was unseen, yet heard, they wanted something to see. They wanted an image of God that they could see the golden calf. They broke the covenant before they even received it. And that describes you and me today. Well, let's pause for a moment and ask this question. What is idolatry? You may think, well, I don't know what idolatry is. And I'm sure you do. But when I think of idolatry, I only think of it in one way. And maybe I have monovision here or myopic or whatever that is, short-sightedness. But I think of it in terms of Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that cannot hold or that can hold no water. And these words in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah I think, just simply help us understand the, the nature of idolatry. It is God here, this, this, this spring of living water, this running, gushing river of life, giving water, and we say, you know what, I think I can make something better than that. I, I think I can do something. I can dig my little cistern, and out of that, I'll have more life than if I drink out of this gushing river of cool, fresh, life-giving water. I think I know better, and I can have more life out of what I create to worship than what God offers. That's what we do. We turn all the time, and we dig a little cisterns that holds no water, and if it did hold water, it'd be muddy water, unfiltered water, bad water, Therefore, Moses exhorted the Israelites to hold fast, verse 4, to take care, verse 9, and in verse 15, watch yourselves very carefully. God is unseen yet heard, and we must be watchful that we obey his voice and not try to create an image to worship. Look to verses 15 through 19. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or a female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps from the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the sea, well, that is in the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise up your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted 
to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Idolatry is worshiping the, the creation at the expense of the creator. Paul says this in Romans 1. They fashion things and make them look like some aspect of creation and they bow down to them. Question for all of us. What are we worshiping today rather than God? Money, family, career, ministry. Beware, Moses says to us. Watch yourselves very carefully, he says to us. Why? Moses tells us in verses 23 through 24, God is jealous, yet merciful. But God is jealous. Take care, verse 23, lest he forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And God's jealousy simply means that he'll have no suitors. God's jealousy means that he demands his people's full devotion. He is the spring of living water, Jeremiah 2. And he is jealous for his people to drink deeply of him and not of something that they have crafted to represent an aspect of creation to which they fall down and worship. When we break God's covenant by committing idolatry, verse 25 says we provoke him to anger. And in verses 26 and 27, Moses calls heaven as a witness that, that the people will perish and they will be scattered from the land if they forsake God in idolatry. And we know God's serious. We know God is jealous and he's serious about scattering his people when they break his covenant. In 605 to 587 B.C., in that time frame, God's people were taken into captivity in Babylon and Jerusalem destroyed. But Moses would also have us know and remember, Moses preached, God is also merciful. Look at verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or, de or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. We know the history. After 70 years in Babylon, the exiles did return. Under Ezra and under Nehemiah, both the temple and the altar and the wall of Jerusalem was rebuilt and repopulated with the returning exiles. God is merciful. God is forgiving. God restores. We, we think about uh, the picture we find in the prophecy of Hosea, God taking back unfaithful Israel. Even in this passage, a passage we'll not really look at today, but in verses 41 through 43, there Moses gives instruction about the cities of refuge. That is a picture, an example of God's mercy. God is merciful 
towards us when we, when we are corrupt and unfaithful. And he calls us to turn from our little dry, mud puddly cisterns that we have dug thinking that we're going to get life. And he, and he says, turn from that. Forsake that. And come unto me and drink deeply of life and live. God is merciful in forgiveness. And if you're here today, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've thought. It doesn't matter how big of a sinner you think you are, and it doesn't matter how big your sin is. Know that God says, turn to me, and I will give you life, and I'll restore you, and I'll forgive you. God is jealous, but he is merciful. And third, obedience is missiological. And I'll be very, very brief, brief on this point. We, we learned something about the importance of obedience. That obedience is missionary activity. Obedience, when the world sees obedience in us, the world, the nations, are pointed to the Lord is God in heaven and above and on earth beneath. There is no other, Deuteronomy 4.39. See, Moses preached in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8 this. So turn to 6 through 8. Keep them and do them, that is the commandments. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see, when the nations, when the world sees Israel's wisdom and understanding when the world sees us obeying the, the wisdom of God, the commands of God, our obedience directs the nations ultimately to the lawgiver himself, the one true God. Thus, obedience is missionary activity. And so as we seek to bring this message to a close. Moses preached to Israel, look at me, listen, so that you might do the commands of God. He commanded obedience. But obedience is unnatural, and so Moses warns the people not to provoke God to anger because of the terrible consequences of covenant unfaithfulness. But in the midst of all that, he reminds Israel, and he reminds you and me today, that God is merciful. He forgives. He restores covenant breakers like you and me. And further, Moses taught obedience is missiological. Our obedience is a witness to the nations that, verse 39, the Lord God in heaven above and on earth beneath, th there is no other, the Lord alone. 
Dallas police officer Amber Geiger, many of you may have heard this story, but she was sentenced, I believe, this week to 10 years in prison after being convicted of the tragic and accidental uh, killing of a man who she thought was an intruder by the name of Botham Jean. And at Amber's sentencing, Brant Jean, the brother of the victim, was allowed to speak to Amber. This is what he said. The brother of the murdered victim, I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be for you to give your life to Christ. And then Brandt asked the judge, he said this, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug? <coughs> and the brother of the victim, torn by grief, walked and gave Amber, the woman who shot his brother, a hug. The judge came down and gave Amber a hug. And the judge gave Amber her Bible. Obedience is commanded. Obedience often is not easy. Like the command to love your neighbor. Brant obeying that command and loving his neighbor who was Amber, the woman who killed his brother. But he loved his neighbor. The judge loved her neighbor. And this story has been repeated in the news media all week. Let me tell you something. When God's people obey for the right reasons out of faith and out of love for God, our obedience points to the Lord God alone. And the nations can't help but take notice. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would so give us grace that we would obey. Obedience is unnatural, and therefore we need the grace of Jesus Christ to enable us to obey, even when obedience is extremely difficult, even when obedience is not what we want to do. So, Father, you've commanded us to obey. You're merciful to us when we fail to obey. We know obedience is a witness. It's missiological. But, Father, give us grace. Give us Christ to enable us to obey more and more. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.